The purpose of military strategy is to bring about an encounter with your enemy in circumstances in which you possess every advantage. Every advantage of ground, of numbers, of armament, of supplies, and everything else which will allow you to defeat your enemy. If in order to defeat your enemy, you have to exercise caution, and that caution might mean withdrawal or retirement or even refusal to accept battle. But once that caution is necessary to realize your end to defeat your enemy, then that caution is justified. Hugh O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone, certainly exercised this caution. In the years before 1601, he was renowned and synonymous for ambush and exercising caution against the English forces in Ireland. Without it, he would never have been able to defeat an enemy which was far stronger, far more numerous, far more well supplied than he was. And therefore, his caution was justified. But no war was ever won by caution alone. The moment would come for O'Neill and his Irish and Spanish allies where they must forego that caution. They must give up that every advantage which they always possessed. And in doing so, they are going to have to assume the offensive and assume it outside of home territory. Their real ability as soldiers will be tested then. And this moment came for O'Neill and his men at Kinsale on Christmas Eve in 1601. While there are so many different men with so many different positions and so many different leaders on the ground that day, the three most important people that we'll be talking about today are Hugh O'Neill, the inspirational general who led the Irish insurgency. He rose up through English society as an Irishman and was tipped to be the Queen's man in Ulster. But once he was home, he realised that he had the great possibility to become the Prince of Ulster or even the Prince of Ireland. After starting the Nine Years' War in 1594, he engaged in a long, drawn-out war against the English, inflicting many great losses on the English army, such as the Fort of Biscuits, Clontibret, Myroy Pass, and, of course, the infamous Yellow Ford. But, at this stage of the war, after nearly seven years of long, drawn-out conflict, O'Neill really needed help, and he was running out of food, money, and ammunition quick. He needed help from Spain. And so, at Kinsale, it was his final opportunity to oust the English colonists from his homeland. And so, he had everything to lose if it did not go his way. But, if it did go his way, he had everything to gain. The gamble was just too much for him not to play his cards. O'Neill's ally, Don Juan del Aguila, the Spanish commander who months beforehand was in jail facing unspecified financial charge when he was offered the choice of either rotting in prison or leading an invasion that many regarded as a suicide mission. It was his last chance at 56 years old to salvage an outstanding career. Del Aguila decided to go with one last roll of the dice and play his hand in Ireland. The other man at the poker table was a man who was just as determined to win. Charles Blount, a 38-year-old English commander, was living in the shadow of the gallows. 
his illicit passion for Lady Penelope Rich, a beautiful but politically lethal aristocrat, had linked Charles with a lunatic plot to attack the royal palace in London. This man, Charles Blunt, is more commonly known by his title, Lord Mountjoy. Lord Mountjoy was lucky to have Queen Elizabeth's favour preserve him for a few more months. But by 1601, she was on her deathbed and his enemies were circling like vultures. He desperately needed to have a victory to save his career and most likely his life as well. He showed up at the poker table that was Ireland in 1601 and played his hands at Kinsale. When these three men met and clashed at Kinsale, the result was a dramatic 100 day standoff, culminating in a massive fast paced pitched battle with both sides displaying huge amounts of courage. The siege and battle of Kinsale deserves its place in global history alongside Rourke's Drift and the Alamo. It is truly a fascinating battle. The Nine Years' War began in 1594. I'm not going to get into the whole reasons for the origins of this war because that could take another few hours in and of itself. But just to summarise it, real reason for the Nine Years' War was the encroachment uh, by the English on the Irish lords. This encroachment resulted in the loss of land, whether it was through crown-sponsored plantations or by adventurers like Carew, uh, a loss of religious freedoms like the closure of Ireland's monasteries by King Henry VIII, or just in general the, the loss of traditional Gaelic Irish way of life. O'Neill acknowledged early on the situation that he was in. He knew that he couldn't stand toe-to-toe with the full might of the English forces. And if he did, especially in those early days, it would be a disaster. And acknowledging that, that's why he implemented this insurgency style of warfare, or irregular warfare as it's known today, in which he would ambush the English forces and, and strike where his enemy is at the weakest. In essence, he would use that caution that we spoke of before to gain his military success. And these successes were at Yellowford and Moirai Pass and several other places. But it wasn't just because of this asymmetrical warfare that led to O'Neill's successes. There were a few other ones. G.A. Hayes McCoy, the Irish history professor and military historian says that O'Neill's leadership was outstanding and unprecedented in the Irish context. Some comparisons have been made uh, between O'Neill and the High Kings of Ireland you know, from uh, 400 odd years previous. But I think O'Neill's leadership is something quite different. O'Neill was essentially the heart and soul of the struggle. Um, Without him, the Nine Years' War may never have happened or certainly may not have happened and followed the course the way it did. If you look at the Battle of Clontarf and the High King Brian Boru, that major standoff between the Gaelic Lords and the, the Vikings was probably going to happen anyway. And so that's why I think the, there's no real comparison between O'Neill and anybody else. 
They give you a list of just some of the attributes of this man. He was incredibly intelligent. He was patient, infinitely resourceful, a great organizer, a subtle and crafty negotiator, and of course, a, an incredible soldier also. Matthew de Oviedo, the Archbishop of Dublin, said that the reputation that O'Neill has with the enemy is so great that it alone sustains the war. Another reason for O'Neill's success was that O'Neill and his allies were fighting for what they truly believed was a real worthy cause. I mean, they, they were fighting for the last chance to prevent the abolition of the old Gaelic institutions and the old way of Gaelic life and, and, and fight off the uh, centralised administration of England. O'Neill himself hoped for, and here's a quote, that this island of Ireland shall be at the direction and council as Irishmen, and declared that he would do the best he could for God and country against the enemies and tyrants. End quote. English commentators are probably a little bit more critical and observe that O'Neill was probably looking for a bit more than just have Ireland run by Irishmen and wouldn't be happy until he was Prince of Ulster. And there is some basis for this statement because in 1595, Hugh O'Donnell, O'Neill's chief ally, attacked the castle and claimed it for the Prince of Ireland. Religion was another major factor in O'Neill's success. He had proclaimed himself as a Catholic champion and the Nine Years' War became something of a rally cry between Catholics and Protestants. The European call for a crusade certainly was answered by Spain. In fact, Queen Elizabeth's Irish Council acknowledged that Tyrone wanted to be the Lieutenant of the Pope and the King of Spain. The next reason for O'Neill's previous successes were his cohesion um, as a united military unit. Uh, the time of great mercenary service throughout Europe had essentially passed by this stage, not in entirety, but for the most part. And in its wake, there were multiple national militias or armies. Queen Elizabeth's army was essentially the national militia of England, and it was the first organized English army in the modern sense. It was partly volunteer and partly conscript, equipped with the firearms on the contemporary continental scale. It had organization, armament, supplies and numbers, and was infinitely more powerful than any previous English army. And so Hugh O'Neill had to do the exact same. He and his allies had to create a national militia of their own. You could argue that the Ulster militia was a provincial or indeed a national militia also. And through O'Neill's transformation of the Irish scheme of Gallaglass, the Ulster army became an organized, equipped and trained army that had never been seen before in Gaelic Ireland. And lastly, ambush. I'll say it before and I'll say it again, O'Neill was so successful up until this point in the war because of a successful implementation of ambushes. He fought in places and at times in a style that best suited him and not his enemy. 
But this military strategy was purely defensive. And O'Neill and his allies never went looking for an enemy to attack that were not already looking for him. Instead, what O'Neill did was he would lure his enemy into a trap and then ambush them once they've fallen into that kill zone and defeat them that way. Now, you could argue there were operations into Munster and Connacht and Leinster by both O'Neill and O'Donnell and their other allies to stir up the war effort and, and, and gain support. But none of these were truly offensive measures because they really tried to skirt or hide away from the main enemy English force in these operations. O'Neill's real aim was to prolong the war effort for as long as possible to undermine the Queen's resolution to continue to fight, to cause so much life and money to the English exchequer that they would have to either pull out or sue for peace. And it was working quite well for O'Neill until when Mountjoy entered the war against O'Neill in 1600, he deployed the full reserves of England. Mountjoy and the English declared their determination to wade through seas of Irish blood to establish their dom domination against the Irish. To wade through seas of Irish blood to establish their domination. Mountjoy had learned from the mistakes of his predecessors Berg and Essex and he most certainly would not allow another yellow ford. When Hugh O'Neill came to power in Ulster in 1595 Ireland's armies were at best, they were out of date, and at the worst, well, they were flat out archaic. Now, O'Neill had served under the Earl of Essex in the 1570s. He had served um, against the Desmonds in the Desmond Rebellion from 1579 to 83, and he also fought along uh, Henry Bagnall, his brother-in-law, in 1593. So O'Neill had a considerable amount of military experience. But what this military experience did do was it highlighted to O'Neill the inferiority of the Irish arms and tactics. And so O'Neill, in order to put his troops on a more equal footing with those of his English adversaries, set about introducing a whole raft of different reforms, both from him and his contemporaries to continually improve the standards of the Irish equipment, the Irish training, the fighting abilities, their marksmanship, and a whole host of different methods to wage war. O'Neill's reforms were so proficient that English sources grew and grew in their amount of references to the steadily improving standards of the Irish armies. Richard Stanihurst wrote, the use of firearms is at last becoming common amongst them, them being the Irish. Once they were unable to bear the sound of gunfire without trembling, now they mix gunpowder and fire their bullets quite freely and skillfully. Throughout the first half of the Tudor period, the Irish were really lacking in firearms. And while in 1504 and the Battle of Nocto, when the first gun was used in, in a battle in Ireland, it was quite some time before guns really were commonplace. And that was O'Neill's first problem. And how did he solve it? Well, he imported a whole lot of guns from Scotland, from Spain, from 
Poland. And interesting enough, he also imported them from England, where greedy merchants in Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham were quite willing to smuggle guns for the enemies of the crown for that right price. And it got to the stage where by the late 1590s, guns and gunpowder were being manufactured in Ireland as well. Even before the war broke out, O'Neill was training and preparing men in the use of firearms. He would give gifts of guns to friends and allies when he was on these so-called hunting trips, which were really recruitment drives. Or he would hold shooting competitions for locals and have people travel from far and wide to compete in these competitions. And then during the war itself, he would pay soldiers armed with shot an extra 5p more than a normal soldier armed with an axe or what have you. And that extra 5p might sound paltry today, but it was a considerable amount back in the 1590s. Tyrone had his own men trained by six English captains who were provided to him by the English government themselves. And you might be wondering, why did the English government give trainers to their enemy? Well, because they had never expected O'Neill to turn on them and they were actually meant to fight with Tyrone's men against his enemy, Turlock Lenoch O'Neill. Now, each one of those captains was to train a company of men, which was 100, so therefore to be 600 men trained by these English captains. But, according to Fine Morrison, and I'm paraphrasing here, Tyrone would change those men daily, putting in new untrained men in the place of others who had just been trained, until all of Tyrone's men had been trained to perfectly use those firearms. The continuing reliance on Irish troops in the English army began to pose a severe security problem for the English crown. Hundreds, if not thousands, of Irishmen were trained to be soldiers in the English army. And if they ever turned against the English army, well, they would have themselves a serious problem. In 1563, the English army had the foresight to come up with an agreement that only five to six Irishmen could serve in an English company of a hundred men. But by the 1590s, some of these companies were three quarters Irishmen. This worked so well and had so many Irishmen had firearms that were able to handle them competently that by the time Tyrone's rebellion actually began, Peter Lombard, the Archbishop of Armagh, reported that even the swineherds, farmers, ploughmen, shepherds, and even the boys had learned to use a gun. Sir Barnaby Rich echoed that sentiment when he observed there was hardly a stable boy left in the country, not well armed and trained in guns. English soldiers stated that the Irish were as good marksmen as France, Spain and Flanders can show. And most contemporaries of the day would have agreed that the Irish were generally better shots than the English with either cavalier or musket. Like I said earlier on, Tyrone's intention from the outset was to equip and train his troops in the style of the English. And that worked so well for him, especially because the English army was training so many numbers of Irishmen, essentially you know, not costing Tyrone a penny. And the reasons why they did this was because the English army would 
pay the Irishmen a lot less than their English counterparts and the captains of the company would just then keep the money. And Sir Barnaby Rich, the Englishman, observed that as soon as an Irish soldier was trained, away he went to the enemy. But some Irishmen had already had some military experience, whether it was in various different wars uh, throughout the Tudor period, or perhaps with the Spanish in the Low Countries. Um, and those guys came back and provided a lot of military assistance as well, generally as officers. Tyrone not only focused on the use of firearms, but he also tried considerably to introduce the pike into his Irish armies. And while some people say they were as good as the English, others said they weren't as good as, either way, Tyrone never had enough pikes to be able to equip his army and enough time to train them in effective use of uh, standing pike formations. As well as that, because up until 1601, Tyrone had engaged in ambush, so he never needed to have a pike formation, which was primarily to you know, stand, defend, and get shot at and attacked, and still be able to charge. So he never needed it in the first place. The only time that he was able to deploy them in open battle was at Kinsale, and we'll discuss how that worked for Tyrone. So how did O'Neill divide up his army? Quite simply, he did it along the same lines as the English army. He divided his men into companies that were, on paper, 100 man strong. But in reality, they might be down in the low 80s. Each company was the, commanded by a constable, which was the equivalent of an English captain. In 1601, Tyrone actually ordained that the constable of 100 men is obliged to have four score and four men on foot, and he is allowed 16 dead pays. So, what does that mean? That means that each constable or captain had to have at least 84 men in the company. And what are the 16 dead pays? Well, 16 dead pays was essentially the pay for 16 men that did not show up to complete the 100 man company. The constable in charge of raising the 100 men would then get to keep all that pay for himself. And that's one of the main reasons why the English captains underpaid the Irish soldiers in their company. So they could skim the cream off the top and keep all that extra pay for themselves. Now, within these companies, there was presumably several junior officers and NCOs that helped train junior ranks just like they did in the English army. As for the cavalry, well, they were more than likely organized into a 50 strong cornet. The reason why it was 50 strong horsemen was because Tyrone maintained a 50 strong troop in Queen Elizabeth's army right up until 1594. It's what he had the most experience with. In fact, the Irish cavalry in the 1590s was acknowledged by the English as being in many regards their superior in, in, in numbers as well as their goodness of their horses. But once we finish this podcast, I think you'll have a different opinion on the Irish cavalry. So let's have a look at the English army. Now, in 1598, the official muster for the English army in Ireland was 6,000 582 men which is pretty substantial because in 1599 
O'Neill was meant to have in the region of 6,940 men. So the two armies are quite comparable. But the English actually had a deficit of 2,137 men, which was far exceeding the amount of dead pays in English companies. The permitted dead pay for an English company of 100 men was 9 dead pay per 100 and 40 per 50 horse. Fines Morrison, Mountjoy's secretary, reckoned that the most a company of 150 men could actually muster was only 120. But in reality, when Mountjoy's army was in Dundalk in 1600, the situation was far worse. Ten companies were meant to have 150 men nominally, but actually only read between 76 and 102 men present. Another 11 companies of 100 men stood anywhere between 38 and 79 men each. Edmund Spencer, the English observer, believed that right from the outset in Ireland, barely a quarter of any company actually existed. In addition to being severely undermanned, the majority of English soldiers who were sent to Ireland were of a low standard. Although, let's be real, they were probably no worse than those sent elsewhere. But these soldiers were predominantly conscripts who had often been enlisted by force. Sir John Norris complained that in 1595, in the last 200 to 300 soldiers sent over, there were not 20 men that would become proficient soldiers. The rest are all old ploughmen and rogues. To help stiffen the morale of these inexperienced troops, quite often large contingents of more experienced veterans were drawn in from English forces serving in the Netherlands or the Scottish border regions, and this did help the English soldiers. Now, the problem of dead pays was not solely confined to the English infantry either. Of the 23 cavalry companies in Ireland by 1598, only one was fully comprised of Englishmen. Only one other had more Englishmen than Irishmen in its ranks. Seven companies were entirely made up of Irishmen, who were either from the Pale or what were considered mere Irish. And then all but one of the rest were comprised of at least two-thirds Irish. So we've talked about the Irish leaders, how the Irish soldiers were trained, company size. So now let's have a look at how the Irish fought. And Irish warfare centred on skirmishing and ambush. Setting in and falling back on an enemy as needs must. Only closing in on the enemy if they saw an advantage. And Fines Morrison described how they dare not take a stand on a plain field but always fight upon bogs and passes of woods where the foot being very nimble come off and on at pleasure. Most writers of the Tudor period made it very clear that the Irish made a very elusive enemy. In the narrow passes through Ireland's dense woodlands or at the fords across many rivers and bogs, the Irish armies could appear as if from anywhere, fight for as long or as short as suited them and then disappear into the wilderness with the same suddenness. He is a flying enemy, wrote Spencer, hiding himself in the woods and bogs from whence he will not draw forth, but into some straight passage or perilous ford where he knows the English must pass. There he will lie in wait, 
and if he finds advantage fit, will dangerously hazard the troubled English soldier. Bitter experience had taught the Irish that they stood little chance in an open field of battle, and consequently they did all they could to avoid such a confrontation. John Zouch grumbled that they must do what they can, we shall never fight the Irish unless they have a will to fight us. Another English commander, Sir John Harrington, wrote that such ambush tactics were like a dance of death. He continues, that the Irish come on fast with a hail of darts and shouting their war cry, Abu. It was howled, not in unison, but in a rolling, shuddering, Mexican wave of sound, as if it was like rolling thunder. If the English flinched and began to retreat, they were lost. For the Irish, in Morrison's words, were exceedingly swift and terrible executioners, merciless in pursuit, never sparing anyone that pleaded for quarter, and mutilating and even beheading the fallen soldiers. They never believed that the enemy were dead until they had chopped off their heads. Interestingly enough, this policy of beheading the soldiers or your wounded enemy was also adopted by the English subsequently. However, thanks to the training regime of O'Neill and O'Donnell and their allies, it was starting to be believed by some English contemporaries, such as James Perrott, that the Irish had overcome their previous inability to embattle their troops or to withdraw them from field in good order. Essentially, they were now able to stand and fight the English in a pitched battle. Significantly, even Mountjoy himself was of the opinion that when it came to close combat, it was the Irish who usually prevailed. Perhaps one of the reasons why Mountjoy was of that opinion was because of the use of the Galloglass soldier in Irish warfare. These mercenary soldiers were originally from Scotland and established themselves in Ireland first in Antrim and throughout the 16th century trickled their way through each and every province until they became a mainstay in Irish warfare. To give you an idea of the Galloglass with his razor sharp axe, you kind of have to think somewhere along the lines of the ancient Greek Spartan. English writers of the 16th century were unanimous regarding the grim determination of Galloglass once battle was in full swing. Noel observed, These sorts of men be those that do not lightly quit the field, but bide the brunt to the death. Dimmock wrote, The greatest force of battle consisted in them, choosing rather to die than to yield, so that when it cometh to handy blows, they are quickly slain or win the field. No means inclined to give quarter, said another, adding that should they come to close fighting, they will either soon kill or are killed. The main reason for this ferocity in battle of the Galloglass was probably that upon recruitment, each Galloglass swore an oath never to turn his back on the enemy, whatever the circumstances. Fairly reminiscent of the ancient Greek Spartan to come home with your shield or to come home on it. O'Neill would try to improve his army and upgrade his Galloglass by training them to become pikemen or to use muskets in battle. But because there was a shortage of pikes, 
they could not finish that training and so a lot of these Galloglass soldiers went into the Battle of Kinsale with their razor sharp axes and their muskets. So like I said the Gaelic preference for hit and run ambush tactics often dominated the Nine Years War. But by 1600 Tyrone was shown his ability to be capable of implementing far more sophisticated military strategy. He had a successful implementation of trench warfare at Yellowford and at Moiroy Pass. And the fact that English general after English general after English general who came in and tried to quell the rebellion had to leave Ireland with their tail between their legs. I mean, even the flamboyant Earl of Essex, the victor of Cadiz, made little to no progress against O'Neill, even with his well-supplied army. Further testament to O'Neill's prowess and greatness as a general was probably his ability to maintain support from the public and his own people in the face of the horrors of war in which they endured. To give you an example, here's a quote. We have burned and destroyed everything along the loch, even within four miles of Dungannon, where we killed man, woman, child, horse, beast, and whatever we found. The last service from which we returned yesterday was upon Patrick O'Quinn, one of the chief men of Tyrone, dwelling within four miles of Dungannon. Fearing nothing, we set upon him and killed him, his wife, his sons and daughters, servants, and his followers. And then we burned everything to the ground. In the north of the country, in Derry, Sir John Bollis attacked Cumber in O'Cahan's country and reportedly killed nearly a hundred people. This Sir John Bollis was a notable killer of priests, accounting for over 20 in a single incident. And so O'Neill, having his people to endure the full horror and nightmare situation set upon them, was still able to garnish so much support and help from these people and truly that is a fantastic sign of his ability as a great general but by the beginning of 1601 it was becoming very clear to O'Neill that unless the Spanish sent aid fast his position was coming weaker and weaker especially against the surmounting weight of Mountjoy's resources O'Neill's very survival was at stake no general can keep an army in the field, can feed them, supply them, arm them, pay them indefinitely, especially against an enemy who's far more well supplied than you. And this is the position that O'Neill was finding himself in. And not only that, he had to keep his army in the field. All the while, Dokra in Derry and Crew and Munster had been whittling away at O'Neill's power, but they had not yet made him desperate. In fact, by the time Kinsale is to be fought, it's a battle of desperation, but it's actually for Mountjoy and not O'Neill. In June 1600, the Spanish court were told that the Ultramen were hemmed in between two hostile armies. Mountjoy's and Docker's armies in the north and that the Ulstermen were exhausted and impoverished but if they had the assistance of just 600 Spaniards 
and if those forces were equipped with heavy artillery, the Irish could take any city in Ireland. Again, two months later in August 1600, the enemy's strength grows daily and our people are losing courage, the Spanish court was informed. O'Neill believed that he could hold out possibly till September, but no longer than that. By this stage in the war had rattled on for so many years and by September 1600, O'Neill had neither the food to feed his men nor the money to pay them. Still, again in October 1600, he pleaded to the Spanish court for aid, quoting that with six to 7,000 Spaniards with heavy guns, we shall be the masters of the kingdom. Eventually, by the winter of 1600-1601, reports of Spanish preparations to invade Ireland were becoming more and more frequent. The question on both the Irish and the English mines were where to land such a force. The English had guessed the south or maybe the west and in doing so Mountjoy moved his forces south towards Trim in County Meath from the Ulster border to be ready to move on any emergency. This Spanish force was to be led by Don Juan de la Guila and the naval commander was Don Diego de Brochero. But you might be asking, why were the Spanish trying to get involved with this? What had they got to gain from helping out O'Neill and O'Donnell? Well, it was quite simple. Spain and England were at war with each other. And by helping O'Donnell and O'Neill injure England significantly in Ireland, that would help the Spanish advance their own aims. By landing in Ireland, this would force the English to recall their troops from the Spanish Netherlands and probably ply them into Ireland, where they could be defeated by the supposed six to 7,000 Spanish troops, as well as O'Neill and O'Donnell's men. And lastly, by using a liberated or a conquered Ireland and the Spanish Netherlands, they could be used as a launch pad to attack the English mainland. So, where to land this Spanish force? At the time, it was understood that a voyage to Ulster would be very difficult for the Spanish because of the rough seas, the storms that are so common on the Atlantic coast, and the higher chance of interception by the Royal Navy. So, they suggested a Munster landing would be best and easiest to reinforce. A, it's a shorter distance. B, it's more protected from the Atlantic storms and C, Munster farmland would be far more capable of supporting such a large influx of men and horses into the area, far more than Ulster. The problem with a Munster landing is that it is literally the furthest point away from where O'Neill and O'Donnell were based. And so to link up these two allied armies would be a monumental task. In July 1601, the Spanish court favoured a northern landing, but the Spanish court representative in Ulster, the Archbishop of Dublin, Mateo de Oviedo, came out strongly against this and really pushed for a Munster landing instead, offering Cork, Limerick or Waterford as far more viable options. 
And so the Spanish agreed that Cork or Kinsale would be the landing point unless they received a reply from O'Neill or O'Donnell themselves changing the rendezvous point. Unfortunately for the Irish, the landing in Munster was the old opinion and O'Neill had actually come to believe that Munster was too inundated with the English soldiers and somewhere else needed to be chosen. In fact, a messenger from O'Donnell arrived in Coruna on October the 1st, 1601 to tell the Spanish to change their landing point to Limerick or Galway or at a push Loch Foyle. But because information spread so slowly back then, Donaghia had already left that very same day. Really, the Irish preference had always been for a Spanish landing in Munster. And this was discovered by Father John Silk and Father Frederick Jones who had poured over the Spanish archives and made this discovery. The reasons for the Irish preference for a Spanish landing in Munster was very simple. One, the war could not be won in the north. There was not enough food to feed O'Neill's army, let alone another several thousand Spanish troops. The poet Edmund Spencer called Munster a rich and plentiful country, full of corn and cattle. There, invaders wouldn't starve. But, on the other hand, the English would wish no greater plague to the Spaniard than to be sent to the north. In fact, they actually called it a desert country, which could not cover the Spaniard with town nor castle, nor yield him any property or comfort other than raw beef, which is nourishment contrary to his humour and complexion. So in other words, the north was disastrous, it wouldn't have enough towns, it didn't have enough food, it was horrible for these Spanish people, so Munster was the place to go. And not only that, Munster was the best place for bays and safe havens to land a massive naval expedition. The second reason why the Irish preferred a Spanish landing in Munster was simply due to the lack of roads. It would have been super difficult to manoeuvre around the north with the extra several thousand Spanish troops as well as O'Neill's army. Feeding these huge numbers of men would have been extremely difficult as already mentioned. And thirdly, without roads it would have been extremely difficult to move about heavy guns around Ulster. And so taking English towns or indeed English forts would have been nearly impossible. Therefore, the plan was simple and it stuck to a numerical idea. If the Spanish landed with six to seven thousand men, they were to land in Waterford or Cork. If they landed with three to four thousand men, they were to land in Limerick or Galway. And if they landed with two thousand men or less, they were to land somewhere in Tyrconnell whether it be Killybegs, Sligo or Loch Foyle. It was always the arrangement that the Spanish and the Irish armies would strike the English together. And therefore, they needed to have the best base of operations, the best roads, the most amount of food available and the highest number of targets. And that was most certainly Munster and definitely not Ulster. The problem with this very simple plan was that the English knew it was going to happen. As far back as 1596, 
The Queen's Irish Council stated that there would be some Spanish attempt to take a town in Munster. And then again in 1597, the English government warned that the Earl intends to turn the greatest bulk of Spaniards into Munster. They knew it was going to happen and that's why Mountjoy had moved his troops from Ulster border further south precisely to counter this inevitable Spanish landing. In any case, even had the Spanish received O'Donnell's message to change the point in which they were going to land their force to Galway or Limerick or wherever, O'Neill and O'Donnell would have still have had to assume the offensive outside of their known home territory and, quite simply, the Battle of Kinsale could have been substituted for the Battle of Galway or Limerick or wherever. Just because the location of the battle may have changed, that doesn't mean that the outcome of the battle would have. And so, the Spanish set sail. On the 21st of September 1601, a Spanish fleet of 28 ships occupied the Irish port at Kinsale with around 3,300 men. They disembarked in a badly victualled and furnished condition under the command of General Don Juan de la Guila. That nightmare that had haunted the Elizabethan state ever since 1585 had come to pass. The Spanish had landed in Ireland. But the nightmare for the English may not have been as bad as expected. In the event, four other Spanish vessels, commanded by Pedro de Zuber, carrying an extra thousand soldiers, was driven back to Spain by the storms. These four vessels also contained the majority of the artillery and their food and supplies. This Spanish invasionary force with 3,000 men landed in Kinsale, a town that was never mentioned at all in all of the Munster ports. It was the worst choice to withstand a siege because it was situated in a hollow with really poor walls. Kinsale was such a poor choice to land that invasionary force the English barely even defended it, having merely a token garrison defending the place. And as soon as the Spanish showed up, that token garrison fled. Things got even worse for the Spanish because that expected support from James Fitzmaurice, the Sugon Earl, and of Florence McCarty had never actually occurred because the Sugon had been arrested by Sir George Carew earlier that year and had them thrown in the Tower of London. Even worse, Sir George Crew had his army quartered in Cork only a few miles away and they were quick to react to the Spanish position in Kinsale. It was two days later on the 23rd when Mountjoy had heard of the Spanish landing in Kinsale. He was only 100 miles away in Kilkenny. Mountjoy found himself in quite a predicament and he had two options. He could either gather his men and go north and keep O'Neill and O'Donnell locked up in Ulster. Or he could turn south and keep the Spanish contained in Kinsale town and hope to prevent a link up between the two armies. Mountjoy chose the latter. He assembled his troops and headed south. Two days later, he was in Clonmel, over 50 miles away, and by Cork on the 27th. Mountjoy had come to the conclusion that it was no longer a question for the war for Ireland but rather the war for England made in Ireland. 
Mountjoy made plans to assemble as many English troops in Munster as possible. He kept a Waterford garrison in Waterford and told them to stand fast in case of any other Spanish landings. He then called upon every other soldier in Munster who could be spared to assemble on Cork. He even included 1,400 troops from the English forts along the Tyrone border. Captain Williams of the Blackwater Fort on the Tyrone border was left with roughly 100 men to prevent O'Neill and his thousands of Irish troops spilling south to connect up with the Spanish troops. The English army's numbers and speed were so impressive for this time. On the day of the landing, on the 21st of September, 1601, there were 1,200 men in Cork. On the 24th of September, there were 3,000 men in Cork. And by the 14th of October, there were 6,900 English troops in Cork. In fact, Munster was not to see this type of marching for another 200 years when the French attempted to land in Bantry Bay. Like any good general, Mountjoy's biggest fear was his supply chain. He had said, The state of our kingdom depends on our ability to keep the field. If we break for want of victuals, the country will revolt and the Spanish will take the towns. So, Mountjoy demanded a lot of supplies, and he was given plenty of them. But, with 7,000 troops to keep fed and watered for a 100 days siege, those supplies began to dwindle very quickly. In fact, it was said that the lack of supplies caused Mountjoy nearly to break and send his cavalry to Cork for resupply days before the battle took place. Now, just as a side note, I know that I've said that there were English troops and the English army and English men, but in actual fact, there were hundreds, if not thousands of Irish men serving in Mountjoy's army. There were Irish men from the Pale, from Munster, from uh, Galway who were followers of the Burg, and a whole host of other guys from all over Ireland. The author Des Eakin describes the Irishman Richard the Burg as your cliched dashing young cavalry officer. He was good looking, charming and a popular figure in London court where he had become a firm favourite. The Burg was fearless and impulsive and was one of the rising stars of the Queen's forces in Ireland. According to Fiennes Morrison, the Burg served the Queen nobly, valiantly and faithfully. And what's interesting about the Burg is he's not your standard Queen's man either. He's not prim and proper. He's a Catholic. He openly professes his faith, which, given the Catholic's record in Tudor England, or rather Tudor England's record against Catholics was a brave move. He'll actually kill 20 people in the Battle of Kinsale and some people argue that he single-handedly changed the outcome of the battle. And for this, Mountjoy will give him a battlefield knighthood that very day. The only man in all of the English forces to receive such an award. So, like I said, it's not just Englishmen in this army. There's Irishmen too. O'Neill and O'Donnell were quite slow to react to the news of their Spanish allies landing in Kinsale. In fact, because of the new circumstances with the depleted number of troops in and around Ulster, 
O'Neill's first task was to reclaim his former allies who had made peace with the Queen. Then, in an attempt to lure Mountjoy out of Munster towards Ulster and perhaps attack him in, in another ambush, O'Neill played the old Irish game of raiding the English Pale whose food stores were full to the brim at this point because it was just after harvest. So O'Neill's men were able to inflict the maximum amount of damage and be able to stock up on all of the pale stores. But all of this came at a price. O'Neill was far too slow to get down and help to relieve the Spanish allies. By the second week of October, his men were only raiding as far south as slain in County Meath. And by November, 22 villages had been burnt to the ground in County Meath alone. But this gamble did not pay off for O'Neill. Mountjoy stood firm and steady in Munster and was not prepared to come out. That meant that O'Neill was going to have to throw caution to the wind, go against his very nature, assume the offensive and march south on Kinsale. Another reason for O'Neill's tardy departure could be that O'Neill better trusts himself with 20 kern naked in a wood than with 500 Spaniards in a town. And that's precisely what he had to go and do. He had to leave the woods of Ulster to go and help Spanish men in a town in a situation that he was totally alien to. O'Neill also had to split his forces. He had to keep the majority of his men with him for the journey south to Kinsale but also keep enough in the north to hold on and prevent Dockra and Chichester from inflicting any further damage up there. But even by early November, English spies were saying that O'Neill would never move south. And there's some good reason for these accounts. O'Neill had mustered his men at Lake Ramor in Cavan by the end of October. By the end of the month, he had 1,500 men and 200 horses. A week later he had doubled those numbers and on November the 9th he left Dunganning all the while changing directions to constantly throw off spies of his intended direction. But the problem with this crisscrossing manoeuvring that he was engaging in was that he moved very slowly and nine days later by November the 18th he had only moved 15 miles south of Lochramore in County Cavan. But one thing O'Neill was sure of was that each and every man had to carry his own provisions. Every horseman was to carry extra shoes for his horse and every foot soldier was to have an extra pair of brogues for the colossal journey ahead of them. Each man also carried the vast majority of his own food. Understandably, both O'Neill and O'Donnell were so anxious about leaving their territories practically unguarded behind them. Dockra was in Tyrone's land and O'Donnell's cousin, Neil Garve O'Donnell, had turned against his family, sided with the English and took up arms for the control of Tyrconnell. Kinsale really had to be a decisive victory for the Irish so they could quickly reclaim their territories with ease. Hugh Rowe O'Donnell, the Earl of Tyrconnell, was a little bit quicker in leaving the north. He left a full week earlier than O'Neill and made much quicker progress south than his northern ally. But it still needs to be said that he waited for over a month to assemble his men and move south to help his Spanish allies. 
O'Donnell was in a bit more of a rush. He really wanted to expedite this whole process. O'Donnell wanted to get down to Kinsale, relieve the Spanish, defeat the English and get back up to Tyrconnell as quick as possible to protect his family and his lands. As aforementioned, his cousin Neil Garve O'Donnell had turned against him and was poaching in on those lands. O'Donnell, who chafed mightily at O'Neill's delay, had a thousand foot and four hundred horse. O'Rourke, his ally, had five hundred men and forty horse, and Tyrrell, who later joined them, had four hundred foot and forty horse. Once Mountjoy heard that O'Donnell was moving towards him, he listened to his captains and his officers and decided to dispatch Carew, the president of Munster, with 2,500 men to either engage O'Donnell or at the very least to try to prevent or slow his approach. Carew and his 2,500 men left the camp on the 7th of November. They moved up through Cashel, blocking O'Donnell's way down along the River Shore Valley. Caught between the armies of Crewe on one side, the River Shore and the Boggy Mountain Pass on the other, O'Donnell seemed to be trapped. However, neither fear nor dread seized him, recorded his biographer Louis O'Cleary. In an extraordinary turn of luck, the night of the 22nd of November, there was an extraordinary ice and heavy slippery snow, and this hardened up the usually impassable boggy morass of the Sleefailen Mountains to the west. This allowed O'Donnell and his thousands of men to move westwards across the boggy peaks and into Limerick. From there he refreshed and regrouped at Connellogan County Limerick before proceeding down to Bandon Bridge where he eventually rendezvoused with O'Neill. Carew and his men could simply not keep up with the Irish who could cover 40 miles in a single march and they had to return to the Lord Deputy empty-handed. What's really unusual and coincidental about that nighttime frost that saved O'Donnell was that the Spanish commander Don Juan de la Aguila had a very similar situation just 16 years previous. De la Aguila and his men were caught on an ever-shrinking patch of land surrounded by floodwaters and enemy ships in the low countries. Just the same as what happened to O'Donnell, an overnight frost froze up the floodwaters, stuck the ships in place and then Aguila and his men simply walked his troops out of harm's way. O'Neill's and O'Donnell's march across Ireland in the middle of winter is nothing short of heroic, I think. These guys marched through forests, through bogs, over mountains, all the while carrying enough food on their back, their weapons and their armour as well. And it's not just the sheer distance that these guys marched that's impressive. It's the fact that they left their home territories virtually unguarded and in the jaws of the enemy. Dockra and Chichester, Niall Garve O'Donnell were virtually unopposed in the north and they were content on wreaking as much havoc as possible in O'Donnell's and O'Neill's absence. I mean George Washington really disliked his local militias purely because they wouldn't travel very far or when their period of service was up they would all leave and go home. They were not dependable. This cannot be said for this Irish army. Their fears were further compounded by rumours that Queen Elizabeth was planning to send a Scottish army to descend upon Ulster to wreak even more havoc in their absence. And while it could be argued that the Ulster Lords didn't move as quick, if you were in their position, 
would you do the same most likely we would all have stayed at home and let the spanish come to us or at the very least met them halfway okay so we've talked about the spanish had landed in late september 1601 mountjoy is quick to assemble and rush down to cork to meet them in doing so he assembles as many available troops as possible to come with him and fight off the spanish o'neill and o'donnell in the north they plan they assemble their men and after over a month's waiting they eventually descend down into kinsale but what i want to have a look at now is what the spanish were doing in the meantime while they're waiting for their allies because it really wasn't a cakewalk for these guys the annals of the four masters tells us that there was not one hour's cessation by day or night between these two camps without blood being shed between them from the first day on which the lord justice set beside kinsale until they ultimately separated aguila had since they landed conducted himself fairly well they had initially captured the outlying forts around kinsale of rincurn and castle park but eventually after several days and months of fighting with the english they were quote the garrison there neither quiet rest sleep nor repose for a long time and they gave each other violent conflicts and manly onsets until the warders after all the hardships they encountered were forced to come out unarmed and surrender at the mercy of the lord justice leaving their ordnance and ammunition behind them he had held onto the town and he had shown the men that they were full of fight end quote the spanish fought so hard and held on to everything they could for as long as they could for the example at the battle of castle park the spanish garrison of 33 men and a single boy kept an english fort of thousands at bay for four full days before finally succumbing aguila and the rest of his spanish troops held out in kinsale for what would ultimately be a siege of a hundred days constantly been bombarded by the english having to venture out to attack trench works being attacked by the english all the while enduring horrible awful living conditions it was one of the harshest winters in memory and they were reduced to eating dogs cats dying horses and had to endure the freezing irish winters and if you're some guy from catalonia uh, barcelona uh, the basque countries somewhere anywhere in spain you are not used to this bitter cold wet irish winters and yet aguila and his spanish troops held out for what would amount to a hundred days siege so let's have a quick look at don juan del aguila the spanish commander now in ireland he's often been depicted as this pantomime villain somewhat of a buffoon who led his troops to the complete wrong side of ireland and then hid inside of kinsale while the irish fought and died at the battle just outside the walls and while there is some truth to this story this narrative that has taken root in ireland it's not the full truth so let's have a closer look at del aguila aguila was a well-respected veteran soldier and he was known in spain as the man born without fear he joined the army at the age of 17 and worked his way all the way up through the ranks he became the equivalent of a regimental colonel in his 30s and he had served with distinction in almost every conceivable theater of war 
And while he is quite often blamed for landing in the wrong place in Ireland, that wasn't his decision at all. In fact, Aguila wanted to go north because he knew it was much better and easier to link up with his northern allies. Aguila and Mountjoy had some ludicrous personal squabbles during the siege. At one stage, the impractical or unrealistic, or you could even argue that he is highly romantic, but Aguila challenged Mountjoy to settle the entire war in a single man-on-man combat. Like I said, probably not the most realistic situation, but that's the type of guy that we were dealing with. The siege continued on into the month of November, both sides jostling for power to dominate and defeat the other. At one point in November, the English managed to breach a hole in Kinsale's walls with their cannon and launched a massive raiding party of 2,000 men. But after a brutal struggle, the Spanish were still able to repel them back. In retaliation, the Spanish sent 2,000 of their best troops out to destroy some English siege works that were they were constructing. But just as the Spanish had repelled the English, the English returned a favour and sent the Spanish back into the town. The naval aspect of the Battle of Kinsale is quite often forgotten. When the Spanish arrived there in September, there were only two English ships there, the Tremontana and the Irish Moon. By late October, Mountjoy asked for new cannon to be sent to help bomb Rincoran Fort and Castle Park. Both of these forts were a vital part of the harbour defences for Aguila. The English cannon had finally arrived by the 20th of October, aboard Captain Button's ship, the Moon. The bombardment levied by the Moon expedited the surrender of both these forts and forced the Spanish back into the town of Kinsale. Further naval support was slow to arrive and it wasn't until the 12th of November that the English Admiral Richard Levison was to arrive with six warships with an extra 2,000 troops and six cargo ships full of food, ammunition and other supplies for Mountjoy's army. Mountjoy was less than impressed with the quality of these reinforcements, protesting that only one in ten of these soldiers could actually shoot a gun. Meanwhile, on the 2nd of December, Zubair, the Spanish Vice Admiral, had returned from Spain with six small ships carrying several hundred troops at Castlehaven. The English Admiral Levison left one warship in Kinsale Harbour and took the rest of his heavily armed fleet containing five warships down to Castlehaven. But Zubair was waiting for him with an eight-gun battery at the mouth of the harbour. At dawn on the 6th of December, Levison sent Captain Fleming out on the smaller galley, the Merlin, into the harbour. The galley was to take the fire of the Spanish shore batteries, while the 518-ton massive warship, the Warspite, followed in behind. The Spanish shore batteries did their job and pounded both ships, killing 12 and wounding 40 English soldiers. But... The English warships still managed to sink a Spanish flagship and three other vessels, thereby neutralizing Zubair's naval potential to get troops in and out and to resupply. While the English ships were very badly mauled, they still managed to get back to Kinsale for refitting. This naval supremacy that the English had over the Spanish and Irish armies proved to have a devastating effect on the battle itself. So, as we said, 
as soon as Mountjoy knew of the Spanish landing in Kinsale, he assembled every available man in Ireland and gathered them around Kinsale. At its height, the English army was roughly 12,000 men and horse. By the time Carew returned from that ill-fated attempt to stop O'Donnell, his effective force was roughly 7,500. Once Carew had returned, Mountjoy assembled them into two camps. The size of these camps was roughly 1,500 acres, including all the breastworks and all the artillery trenches that are highlighted by the fantastic work of the Kinsale Battlefield Project. And much kudos to those guys who have assembled and worked on the largest archaeological dig in Ireland. So, one camp was barely half a mile directly in front of the town, watching the Spaniards every move. This camp was led by the Earl of Thomond. That camp was located about three quarters of a mile to the northeast of the town. That camp was led by Mountjoy. These two camps put them tactically in a strong position for battle. But the problem of besieging a town in Ireland, far away from your supply lines, for month after month after month, can sap the energy and the effective fighting force of any army. Sickness swept through Mountjoy's forces, where it has been estimated that roughly 6,000 men perished through disease, starvation or cold. After O'Neill had arrived on the 15th of December, Mountjoy found himself in an even worse position. He, the besieger, had technically become besieged, surrounded by the Spanish in Kinsale Town on one side and O'Donnell and O'Neill on the other. O'Neill set about reducing the English to terrible conditions. They did not permit hay, corn, water, straw or any sustenance to be taken into the Lord Justice's camp. The forage for horses quickly gave away and they too began to starve and weaken. Mountjoy's effective fighting force dropped below the enemy's numbers to roughly 6,000 men. But just as the Spaniards had held on in Kinsale, the English had to hold on too. These were the circumstances in which the Battle of Kinsale was to be fought. The army under O'Neill and O'Donnell, which had taken roughly a month to assemble and gather their troops together and then nearly took another month to move from Ireland's northerly point all the way to Kinsale in Ireland's most southerly county. Whereas the English army under Mount Joy had assembled quickly but had a long wait of month after month after month which decimated his troops killing roughly 6,000 men essentially whittling it down to half its effective force. All of this waiting, gathering and movement culminated in a battle that lasted between one and a half to three hours. This battle decided the fate of Gaelic Ireland and has changed the course of Ireland ever since. Since O'Neill had arrived in mid-December, no real fighting took place. Instead, Mountjoy spent his time watching O'Neill and O'Neill did the exact same. Watching Mountjoy, figuring out where his weaknesses were, what was the best way to attack, and how could he 
make Mountjoy's situation even worse by cutting him off from his food supplies. Del Aguila did the exact same from inside the walls of Kinsale. There he sat and watched the English's every move. But Don Juan, the general of the Spanish, got restless and so he sent a messenger to the Irish generals. This messenger, a man called Alferez Bustamante, was so... Well, let me tell you how he was. This quote sums him up. He was so trustworthy that he will allow himself to be cut into pieces before he divulges his mission to the enemy. So, Del Aguila really picked the right guy to go and deliver that message. And this was the message. Aguila had asked that O'Neill and O'Donnell assemble their troops on a hill called Ardmartin Hill, which overlooked the English encampments. They were to do this on a certain night. And while they were there, they were to bring up their baggage and just hold that position. I emphasize that because that's all they had to do. Get up to this hill and just hold on to it. Do not attack. And if you're attacked, you can fight back, obviously, but just hold that position. Because once Aguila sees the Irish troops up there on Ardmartin Hill, he will venture out from the town and either attack the English encampments or they will link up and they will both attack the English army together. Once O'Donnell and O'Neill had heard Del Aguila's message from Bustamante, they decided to deliberate in a war council and figure out how to fight and defeat the English. The ever-cautious, the ever-cautious O'Neill was of the mind that they should wait it out and let the English starve and become weak with famine and then simply sweep in and kill them. There were so many reports detailing, quote, entrails of horses and the corpse of dead men lay amongst the living throughout the English tents so that there arose an intolerable stench of filth, death and disease whenever the wind blew. So, understandably, O'Neill thought, why attack? Let the English continue to live in these conditions where famine is going to take hold, disease is going to take hold and their numbers are going to whittle down even further. So by just sitting there and preventing any English breakout, O'Neill could defeat the English army without even have to raise a hand. In fact, the need for forage was so great that if the English had gone just three more days unrelieved, Mountjoy would have had to break away his cavalry, send him to Cork for resupplies. Had the cavalry actually broken away, the Battle of Kinsale undoubtedly would have been an Irish victory. Hugh O'Donnell, the younger and more fiery leader, disagreed with his ally. His fierce temperament had earned him the nickname, the firebrand of all the rebels. O'Donnell had lost more of his family to the English, and he himself had been kidnapped as a teenager and held a captive in Dublin Castle. So, understandably, his emotions were quite high, but even still, he was all for the attack. O'Donnell was disgusted by the fact that the Irish had not yet helped their Spanish allies who had done so much to help them and he wanted to repay them by attacking the English camp and relieving them of their awful living situation within the walls of Kinsale Town. Eventually a resolution was agreed upon by O'Donnell, O'Neill and their war council. They would follow the request of Del Aguila and hold Ardmartin Hill. The date for the attack was set as the 24th of December. 
Now, this was the 24th of December for the English because they were still using the old style calendar, but to the Irish, it was early January. That very morning on the 24th of December, O'Neill had been reinforced by 600 Munster men and roughly 200 Spaniards who arrived in from Castlehaven, where Pedro de Zuber had landed with six ships on the 1st of December. Spirits were high in the Irish camp and it was quoted that the Irish cheerfully and manfully put on their dresses of battle and conflict and were prepared for marching. The messenger Bustamante, who had not got the time to return back to Kinsale Town, stayed with the Irish, gave this description of the fighters. Quote, there were thousands of fighters of every description, from aristocratic lords in their English-style finery to the barefoot woodcairn wearing little but their long linen shirts and woolen mantle cloaks. There were fearsome Scottish gallow glasses, giant close contact bruisers with their razor sharp battle axes. There were cavalrymen and their humble horse boys. End quote. Each leader was jostling for a position to show his prowess on the battlefield and to be the first on it. None of them wanted to be the last on the field in case they may miss all the action. Uh, a simple case of last one in is a rotten egg. Anyway, O'Neill marches his 6,500 men, some of which are veterans who have multiple years of experience, in three columns, the van, the battle, and the rear. The vanguard was led by Tyrrell. That consisted of Meath and Munster men, Leinster men, and a few hundred soldiers led by Alonso del Campo. The main battalion was led by O'Neill himself. This was the strongest formation and was made up primarily of Ultramen with the most amount of experience. And then their rear, that was led by O'Donnell. This comprised of his men of Tyrconnell and Connacht. The van, main and rear guard had roughly 2,000 men in each. The cavalry were, as usual, a separate formation. The night was stormy and vivid. Lightning flashed continually as if it was a sign of warning to the Irish. But still, they ploughed on. The plan was simple. Move aggressively before dawn, get into position on Ardmartin Hill. Once the Spanish see the Irish in position, they will venture out of Kinsale Town, link up and from there defeat the English army. There are so many accounts that claim that the Irish attack was leaked to the English. Some Venetian reports say that the letters from O'Neill to Aguila were intercepted. English reports say letters from Aguila to O'Neill were intercepted. Mountjoy's secretary finds Morrison claimed many intelligent reports claimed that an attack on both sides of their camp. George Carew even goes one step further and claims credit for penetrating the minds of the Irish leader and being able to read and control their thoughts. The annals of the four masters claim that an Irishman, Brian McHugh Og McMahon, gave the English the Irish battle plans in return for a bottle of whiskey. That last story of McHugh selling the plans for a bottle of whiskey has been proven untrue by the authoritative scholar of the Spanish intervention in Ireland, Father J.J. Silk. Just like many good stories, selling the plans for a bottle of whiskey, while it sounds good, it's just not true. While there is some grounds for a presumption that the English were directly forewarned of the attack, but really, the benefits wouldn't have helped Mountjoy alleviate his dire situation anyway. There he was, sandwiched between two enemy armies, the Spanish in Kinsale on one side, and O'Neill and O'Donnell on the other. 
Mountjoy didn't need spies reports or intercepted letters or the mind-controlling George Carew. You know, he knew he was in a dangerous position. His position was very weak and open to attack on both sides. He was wide open for a pincer movement by the Irish and the Spanish troops. And so what Mountjoy did was, for three days and three nights prior to the battle, he had a squadron volant, or a flying squadron, ready for all emergencies. This squadron volant was Sir Henry Power's regiment of hand-picked men who were relieved of all duties in the camp so they were to be ready and available immediately if and when there was an attack. And surely, as they had been for three days prior, on the dawn of the 24th of December, Sir Henry Power's squadron was in place. In advance of the squadron volant were scouts under Sir Richard Graham. Mountjoy and Carew, unable to sleep due to anxiety and stress, they were back in Mountjoy's headquarters, awaiting any developments that may have happened. Everything had been going in the favour of the Irish right up until this point. O'Neill and O'Donnell had managed to move their armies down south towards Kinsale in relative order and without losing a huge amount of men. As well as that, they had stocked up on all of the supplies that they had raided from the Pale. The Spanish in the town itself of Kinsale were in somewhat of a sticky situation, but they were still able to hold tight for several months. Everything was going against Mountjoy and his troops. They were numerically outnumbered. They had thousands of men die from sickness and disease. They were caught in between two aggressive enemy armies, and they'd only three days of food left. Something needed to happen, and unfortunately for the Irish, the tide turned against them as soon as they set out on that march towards Ardmartin Hill. The Irish scouts made an absolute mess of the approach. These guys were local scouts who knew the area, so it is bewildering to think that they were able to get lost in essentially their own backyard. Even Bustamante, the Spanish messenger, was able to sneak out of Kinsale town and manage to get to O'Neill and O'Donnell's camp in a shorter time period than the Irish scouts had to get to the battlefield. The scouts only had five to six miles to cover to the town and a whole night to get into position. And a walk like this is essentially a walk in the park for these guys who covered 40 miles in a single march with O'Donnell just a month previous. Yet, for a whole host of different reasons, they made a mess of the march. Whether they didn't leave on time, they got lost along the way, the jostling between the leaders to be first on the battlefield actually delayed them more. And soon, O'Donnell and O'Neill, with just over a mile left to get to Ard Martin Hill, they soon found themselves without the cover of darkness. And the battle formation was all askew because of this mess of a march. O'Neill's battle group, they were at the front, the vanguard were in the middle, and O'Donnell's troops, they were way off in the rear. And the way that they were deployed, they were almost so far away from each other to be able to help each other if and when contact was made with Mountjoy's men. Reports say that the English and Irish scouts were of men to have seen each other 30 minutes before dawn broke. O'Neill was not in position, nor were his vanguard, and O'Donnell in the rear were far too behind. O'Neill was really aware of the situation and the disastrous implications that could be set upon his troops. Just at his greatest victory at Yellowford, where he managed to separate the English divisions and defeat them piecemeal, 
This was exactly the same position that O'Neill himself was now in. He had not amassed his troops properly and he was wide open to have his divisions defeated one by one. As the Irish scouts closed in on the position, the Irish musketeers and caliver men began to light their matches. And the match on these muskets burned continuously once it was lit. And the benefit of that was that you were always ready for action and it expedited the firing process. But the disadvantage of that, especially in the dark just before dawn, it gave away the Irish position. And then the English, seeing these matches being lit, returned the favour by lighting their match and then gave away their position to the Irish. And these matchlock muskets, they were huge weapons. A matchlock musket could be up to 6 foot long and weigh nearly 10 kilos. So these guns really needed a big man to carry and fire these weapons. Quote, Only the squarest and broadest men could carry these muskets. The more nimble man was turned towards the lighter arquebus. The two ounce lead ball fired from these weapons was extremely effective when it landed on target. It could kill a man in shotproof armour at 100 paces and even take down a horse. End quote. Once news had reached Mountjoy that the Irish were in position, he sounded the alarm. He advanced with Sir Richard Wingfield the Marshal to survey the battlefield. He selected positions to fight upon, positions to fall back to, and all these orders were trickled down the command chain to the junior officers and NCOs within the English battalions. And Mountjoy makes a massive gamble now. What he does is he divides his 7,000 troops into two groups. He keeps 5,000 men under George Carew to stay back in the camp to make sure the Spanish do not break out of Conseil and to act as a general reserve for the battle itself. So Mountjoy really only deploys 2,000 men and roughly 500 horse. And this is nothing short of crazy but also brave because O'Neill was expecting a huge number of these Irish men within Mountjoy's army to desert Mountjoy and come over and fight with O'Neill but that didn't happen and so Mountjoy was left with a far inferior force fighting against an army that is three times the size of his own and just as day breaks Wingfield the marshal with his 500 horse and the squadron volant faced the halted Irish about a mile and a half west of Kinsale in and around Balnacurra Creek. And so this poses a couple of questions that really just racks my mind. Like, why had the Irish stopped at this position and not continued to push through? I mean, they were only held up by a few hundred men and they had far superior numbers. Even O'Neill's main battalion himself was four times the size of that. You know, or were they lost? Uh, were they still waiting for the way to be reconnoitred by the scouts? Were they waiting for O'Donnell, who was so far behind, to catch up with them? They couldn't have thought that they were at Ardmartin Hill because they weren't on the hill and it was so far away from Kinsale that Aguila would never have been able to see them from his point within the town. But whatever the reason for the stoppage, it caused the Irish to lose the initiative. From this point on, it was Mountjoy who called the shots. Mountjoy ordered Sir John Berkeley, his sergeant major, to bring up Folliot's and St. John's regiments. This caused O'Neill's men to tactically withdraw back across the stream in the opposite direction of Kinsale. They did this to regain composure and to form up in battle formation. Mountjoy's men pursued them across the stream. As the main Irish divisions fell back across the boggy ground to form up on the firm soil, they left their sleeve of shot 
their musketeers in the boggy ground to delay and contest the English crossing the stream. Wingfield sent over 100 cavalry and shot, and the Irish were able to repulse their English counterparts in on top of their cavalry in some despair. But it was only when Wingfield sent in reinforcements that the Irish had to retreat back into their own divisions. And the Irish failed to make a stand or to deny the stream to the English. The Irish retired across some boggy land and finally found some firm ground to find their footing. That's a lot of alliteration. But at this point, they were two miles away from Kinsale. The van and the main were able to form up and waited attack. But O'Donnell still wasn't there just yet. Mountjoy sent the rest of his troops to pursue because he believed that with the cavalry and the rest of his troops, he would be able to inflict a massive loss on the Irish in the fair champion ground ahead. And what was meant by the fair champion ground was essentially it was where two armies could fight like gentlemen and see who was going to be the better general, who was going to be the better army and who was going to win the day once and for all. No ambushes, no sneaky tactics, just two armies standing and fighting and we'll see who wins. Become the champion on the battlefield, Mountjoy had to take on each Irish division. And these divisions were huge. Each of the Irish divisions were essentially a massed square of Irish infantry. They were in the Spanish Tercio, which was the most respected battle formation of the day. And essentially, it was two to 3,000 heavy infantry packed into a square formation. In the centre, the men were predominantly armed with pikes and perhaps a few with arquebuses as well. But on the edge of the Tercio were musketeers. And these essentially, they were known as the sleeve of shot. The Tercio essentially looked like an ancient Greek phalanx, except with guns on the outskirts of it to keep enemies at bay. And while the Tercio was the best or most preferred battle formation of the day, it wasn't without its problems. Obviously, it was so difficult to manoeuvre such a mass of men and still keep their formation and footing. It was more suited to defence rather than attack. And most importantly, to keep that number of men in the same position in fighting formation required months, if not years, of training and practice to be able to wield it correctly in battle. O'Neill simply didn't have the time or the resources to train his men like that. And while the Battle of Kinsale would become a defensive battle for O'Neill, his men were far more used to ambushes and hit-and-run tactics where they would assail the enemy and then disappear back into defensive features such as woods. They were not ready to stand and fight in these formations in any way, shape or form, especially not without prior training. O'Neill had been so successful throughout the Nine Years' War up until this point because he used ambushes and the enemy did not know where he was about to strike. But in pitched battles, in mass formations like the Tercios, he lost every advantage because the enemy knew every move he was about to make. As for the speed of the Irish warriors, well that was lessened and dampened when they were massed together in these Tercio formations. Instead of rushing out of the woods and attacking an enemy with spears or swords or battle axes or even guns, this is how long it took for a musket man to fire his rifle. Quote, Getting on target was the problem though, and an arquebus might fire 50% of the time, while the matchlock musket may fire 1 in 5. 
Loading and reloading took its time and even a trained musketeer took several minutes to reload and could still barely fire twice in a minute. Being only able to fire twice in a minute is incredible because think about how much damage you could do up close with a gallow glass axe in your hand in one minute to a mass group of enemy. But having those guns wasn't without its benefits. These musket balls could inflict horrific damages on your enemy. You could normally make 12 balls from a pound of lead. Sometimes you would have smaller ones which were called 16 bore balls. But the standard was a 12 bore musket ball and measured around 3 quarters of an inch in diameter. Now I just want to compare this to some of the modern weapons today. Let's compare it to a 5.56 rifle bullet, an AR-15, an M16 or a Steyr rifle or the standard NATO round really. A 5.56 bullet has a weight of 4 grams. A 12 bore musket ball has a weight of 35 grams. So immediately there is a phenomenal difference in just the weight of the bullet itself. The muzzle velocity of your standard AR-15 is roughly 970 meters per second. The musket ball, while it only fired at 317 meters per second, it had three times the momentum and the same kinetic energy. So the musket is at least as energetic as the rifle bullet but it leads a much larger hole than the 5.56 ball. Even after it hits, the higher momentum causes a larger distortion of the tissues as it passes through. This distortion, combined with the larger size, results in a far more effective transfer of energy into the victim. Now, while the modern bullet is jacketed, meaning that it may deform, but only slightly, the musket ball was pure soft lead, and it would most certainly fragment on impact creating a much more complex and bigger wound. When it hits, it slams into the person's body rather than punching through rapidly like a faster rifle bullet. Therefore, it transfers all of its shock into the surrounding body tissues and crushes them like a hit with a sledgehammer. It is generally thought that up to a range of 30 yards, the musket ball would go straight through a man. At a greater range, it would still be enough to cause very significant injuries. At this time, during the Nine Years' War, Right up until the 19th century, any serious wound would almost certainly prove to be fatal. Here's an account of soldiers getting hit with these musket balls. Quote, his belly broken and bowels torn, his hip bone broken, all the shivers and bullet lodged in it. End quote. And if it wasn't the impact of the bullet hitting you, killing you outright, well, it was more than likely going to be infection that would do the job. Generally, when a musket ball penetrated its victim, it took a large section of the completely natural clothing with it into the wound. And that clothing being of natural materials like wool would then rot inside you and cause severe infection, which would ultimately cause death. In the 1600s, you might get shot and have to stay in the battlefield for hours and maybe even days before you were transported to the doctor. And that doctor would use the same tools for every patient and had to go manually in and look around for the bullet in that wound. If you were lucky enough to get hit in the digestive tract or in a kidney or some of your vital organs, you would probably die outright. But for the vast majority of these people, they would linger on for days or even weeks before the infection would ultimately take over and kill that person. Okay, so back to Kinsale. Once the English cross over that stream, they have to maneuver through the boggy ground to find some firm ground but they find themselves standing directly opposite the Irish mass troops. 
Wingfield and some of Power's men are some of the first guys across. Wingfield, the marshal, will send his cavalry to do what cavalry have always done in battle, and that's to charge right into the infantry and break them up. But, in doing so, on this occasion, the English horse wheeled away from the Irishmen right at the last minute. The hedge of thousands of Irish pikes seemed too daunting for them at that time. And the Irishman let out a huge roar and cheer when they see the cavalry take flight, probably thinking that they had bested them. As Helmut van Molk, the German Marshal and Chief of Staff of the Prussian Army at its height, once said, No plan survives contact with the enemy. And this was certainly true for O'Neill. He had not reached the rendezvous point to link up with the Spanish. He lost the element of surprise on attacking the English. His three divisions were too far apart from one another to work together and give support, and he was losing ground to the enemy. Yet, it can actually be argued that O'Neill was not in the worst position just yet. He had numerical superiority, his skirmishers were displaying their usual skill, he had solid ground underneath them, and if he were to push the English back, they'd fall into the boggy ground or even into the stream they just crossed, and that could easily lead to the Irish routing the English. When Mountjoy saw his cavalry wheel off from the main Irish division, he trusted his instincts and decided to do it again. This time with all of his heavy cavalry, his absolute best troops, the creme de la creme of his army, on a battlefield that suited them best. Before doing so, he had to check with his scouts to make sure the Irish weren't retreating and luring them into a trap. And once the scouts confirmed there was the fair champion ground ahead, Mountjoy sent in every single cavalryman under his command except for the three troops of horse watching the Spaniards in Kinsale. O'Neill confidently calls up his own cavalry who were as strong numerically as the English. While O'Neill had trained them to fight like their English counterparts, he even gave them drums and trumpets to perfect battlefield manoeuvre. Unfortunately, the Irish cavalry were just no match for the English. So what did cavalry on cavalry warfare look like? I would imagine it would be something amazing. Cavalry units would charge at each other, full tilt, smashing into their enemy at 25 miles per hour, dislodging and knocking their opponents off their horses, lances pointed, swords swinging, pistols firing. An absolute spectacle behold. Like it's, it's, it's so, so difficult nowadays to imagine horses being used for that type of purpose. The recent Game of Thrones episode actually, The Battle of the Bastards, illustrated that really well. How just what it was like to face down a charging you know, wall of horses. And I think they only had 100 horses on that scene. So at the Battle of Kinsale, imagine 10 times that number. There was roughly 500 cavalrymen on each side. So just imagine what that was like to have 500 men on horses. Full tilt, travelling at 20 to 25 miles per hour. Just boggles the mind. Despite Sir John Norris's disparaging view that the Irish cavalry were fit only to catch cattle. The Irish cavalry were perfected to pursuing fleeing enemies and cutting them down in their droves. In fact, Fines Morrison called them the cruel executioners. They're also used for launching surprise attacks on the flanks of enemy cavalry units, but one thing that they could not do was to withstand the impact of an English cavalry charge. They just couldn't do it, and this was for a number of reasons. The Irish rode without stirrups, so they couldn't stay in the saddle and harness the strength of the horse in the collision. This also meant that they either had to wheel away from an English cavalry charge, or if they were to absorb it, they were going to be knocked out of their saddles. Morrison did pay a compliment to the Irish riders when he said that 
Once they were removed from their horse, they were, quote, so nimble they could just as easily remount, end quote. The Irish pillion saddles were not deep enough like the English, which also meant they could be dislodged easily. So essentially, they couldn't harness the strength and speed of that horse into that collision. Instead, they were dislodged as soon as that happened. So that's one of the reasons why they couldn't handle the charge of the English. The next reason was because the Irish preferred to carry their lances over arm and throw them as spears rather than to couch the lance under their arm and then again harness the strength and power and speed of the horse into driving that lance into the enemy. And the accounts of how powerful these lances were when they connected with their their victim or their, their target was astonishing. This is from a 12th century account and while it's still a little bit older than this, it still rung, rings true today. He turns his horse and urges him forward. He aims a great blow with all of his might. He breaks the shield and tears through the hauberk. He pierces the chest and shatters the breastbone. He drives the broken backbone through the man's back and on his spear's point brings out soul and all. Pushed right through, he pushes him off the saddle and flings him dead a spear's length from his war horse. End quote. So it's pretty gruesome stuff. Essentially, that guy drives that spear all the way through your man's armour, piercing out through his back, sending blood and guts everywhere, and launches him about 6 to 10 feet away from where he was on his horse. While O'Neill had made some great advances with his cavalry, they just simply were not any match for the English. These problems had hindered Irish cavalry for centuries, and it could be argued it was Gaelic Ireland's death knell. Mountjoy gave the order, and the English cavalry set off, and they charged down their Irish counterparts, and as so, braced for impact. The Irish cavalry then commit a terrible act. Instead of racing out to meet the English head-on, they turned about and fled. Now, had the Irish cavalry turned about and fled the field, that would have put O'Neill's tercios in a spot of bother. But, given that the tercio was best used for defence, and the fact that they had already deterred one English cavalry charge, they might be able to do it again. They would definitely incur a lot more damage, but O'Neill's tercio may still be able to defend themselves against this English cavalry charge. Especially if O'Donnell and the vanguard were able to come up in time and help support O'Neill's men. But that's not what happened. The Irish committed the most heinous act that you could do on a battlefield. Today we call it blue on blue or friendly fire. When the Irish cavalry began to turn and flee from the battlefield, they didn't do it orderly. But instead, they turned around and ploughed straight through O'Neill's main battle division. This killed and wounded countless numbers of their allies. But even worse, it caused the main battle group to fall out of formation and this caused chaos in the ranks. Marshal Wingfield saw that O'Neill's men were in disorder and concentrated his attack there. He sent his cavalry around the back to attack the Ultramen in the rear and then he sent forward 2,000 infantry to attack the front. The Four Masters tells us, quote, He sent forth vigorous troops to engage them so that they fell upon O'Neill's people and proceeded to kill, slaughter, subdue and thin them until five or six ensigns were taken from them and many of their men were slain. Not only had O'Neill's men had to suffer the 17th century equivalent of friendly fire when their own cavalry smashed into them, but as well as that, a bag of gunpowder had also exploded within the ranks, causing further confusion and also helping to break up the formation of men. 
As they were so tightly packed together, they did not have the space they needed to defend themselves, especially from the infantry in the front and the cavalry at the back. When you're armed with an 18 foot long pike, it's not the tool for the job in close quarters combat. You need something far smaller like a gallow glass axe or a sword. And while some of the men did have these shorter weapons, because of the tercio breaking up, these men were quickly overcome by the English infantry or by the cavalry in the rear. The Irish were just not used to the tercio formation and how to fight and move in it cohesively together as a single unit. As soon as the first few ranks in the front began to break away or fall or were killed when the rear of the main battle group broke away as well, O'Neill's entire division began to break ranks and run for their lives. This is the worst you can do in these situations. It's, it probably would save one or two of the very first people to go, but once the entire unit breaks, the loss of the strength in numbers just no longer applies. And this is when the English cavalry really do their work as they chased down the fleeing men and hacked and chopped away at them in huge swaths. And this slaughter of the retreating Irish continued for up to three miles. Some of the English even took up the Irish habit of beheading their foe just to prove that they were dead. This was the beginning of the end for O'Neill. His main battle division were routed and fleeing from the field. His supporting divisions were too far away to provide enough support. Tyrrell didn't move to help O'Neill until he saw that the Ultramen had broken ranks and were fleeing the field. In a courageous attempt to stop the rout, Tyrrell drove his division like a wedge in between the advancing English and the retreating Irish. Like I said, to be able to do this is very courageous because what he was doing was drawing fire right into the flank of his advancing men and they could not return that fire until they were in position. So they had to have all of this damage inflicted upon them before they could return the favour on the English. When Mountjoy saw Tyrrell try to block his army, he ordered St. John's Regiment, who were only 80 yards away, to charge in on Tyrrell's flank. And, fair play to Tyrrell and his men, they were able to stand and bear the brunt of this English maelstrom. Now, you could probably argue it's probably because Tyrrell's division far outnumbered St. John's Regiment. However, unfortunately, just like O'Neill's men beforehand, Tyrrell's men also broke and began to draw off the battlefield. Many of Tyrrell's men retreated back to Coolcarran, which was where the main camp was located. A number of the Spanish reinforcements that had arrived that morning from Castlehaven under Alonso del Campo managed to retreat to a hill where they took a stand against Mountjoy's troops of cavalrymen. Huge numbers of these Spanish soldiers were killed. 49 of them eventually surrendered and around 60 of them managed to escape all the way back to Castlehaven. And you might be wondering, where was O'Donnell in all of this? This was the fiery young Irish leader who wanted to get down to Kinsale as quick as possible, defeat Mountjoy and get back up to Donegal to defeat his cousin Niall Garve. But throughout this whole battle, O'Donnell was too far away to be able to give any support. But only as O'Neill and Tyrrell were taking flight, Red Hugh O'Donnell managed to rush up and start calling these guys out, trying to get them to rally, to turn and stand and fight. These are some of the words that have been attributed to Red Hugh O'Donnell. Quote, he called out to those who were flying to stand their ground and to rouse his own people to battle and so continued until his voice and speech were strained by the vehemence and the loudness of his language in which he addressed them all. In general, requesting his nobles to stand by and to fight their enemies. He said to them that this is an unusual thing that they were about to do and it was a shame and a guile to turn their backs on their enemies was not the want of the Irish race and that he commands them to turn and fight. End quote. But to no avail. O'Donnell and his men were never really engaged by Mountjoy's troops. It was really O'Neill's troops that had suffered the most in the actual Battle of Kinsale. 
In any case, once O'Donnell's men saw the other two Irish battalions in a rout and fleeing from the battlefield, having the English cavalry chasing after them, cutting them down, demoralised them, scared them, and they fled from the field too. And that was it. The battle was over. It took less than three hours. The English were back in their camp before noon. The Irish eventually found their way back to Coolcarran, where they had another council of war to decide their next steps. Now, you may have noticed that throughout the Battle of Kinsale, I only talked about O'Neill and Mountjoy, or rather O'Neill's army and Mountjoy's army, not mentioning the individual leaders. But you probably noticed that I didn't mention Don Juan de Aguila, the Spanish leader in Kinsale. The Battle of Kinsale was Aguila's brainchild, yet he didn't feature in it at all. O'Neill would have been way better to have followed his plan of just starving out the English and letting them, you know, leave the battle uh, and uniting up with the Spanish in that sense. But it was De Aguila who threatened to attack the English himself if O'Neill and O'Donnell didn't meet up with them. So, where was he throughout this whole battle? Why didn't he sally forth and at least put on some form of attack on the small English force at the Earl of Thoman's camp? You know, what the hell were they doing? Father James Archer, an Irish Jesuit priest who was in Kinsale at the time of the battle, said this of De Aguila, quote, If, even when the battle was raging, he had done nothing more than leave the town and display his troops before the enemy, victory certainly would have been ours. End quote. Father Archer also believed that, quote, When the Irish saw that Aguila did not make the expected sortie, they lost heart and were convinced they'd been betrayed. End quote. Now, it's probably fair to say that Father Archer's religious zeal exceeded his military knowledge, but there is some truth to what he said. The Irish weren't in position, so the Spanish didn't link up with them. I don't think these soldiers would have lost heart. I think they would have been ready for the battle regardless. When the English troops rolled back into camp at midday, overjoyed and delighted at their victory, where the odds were so stacked against them, they all lined up outside of the walls of Kinsale and fired a few de joy. I didn't know what that was either, so I had to look it up. And this is essentially where every soldier lines up and fires their weapon one after the other in a continuous drumroll effect. At this point, De Aguila actually thought that this was the signal from the Irish to venture out. And so he musters his Spanish troops in Kinsale Town and ventures out. But once they see what's happening, and it's not actually the Irish, it's actually the English coming back victorious. They turn tail as quick as possible and head back into Kinsale. Aguila would negotiate a very favourable surrender nine days later. Most of the evidence from the scarcely objective witnesses, it has to be said, indicates that the Spanish knew nothing of the battle whatsoever. So what I'd like to do, just for a bit of clarity, is I'd argue both sides of the case real quick. Okay, so arguments for the Spanish not being in the wrong. O'Neill and his men never actually reached the rendezvous point. Thus, the Spanish didn't actually know if the plan had been implemented or not. And they just couldn't walk out of Kinsale Town, leaving their defensive positions in search, or rather in hope that their allies had begun to march and got into position. Like, had the Spanish have decided to do that, it would have just been a death march, okay? It would have been a suicide job. There was no point in doing that whatsoever. My second argument would be that any gunshots and shooting throughout the battle may not have been heard by the Spanish in there because they were roughly two miles away and they were drawing further and further back away from Kinsale. As well as that, it's the 24th of December in Ireland. During the night march, it was thunder and lightning and a storm was kicking up. So it probably wasn't an all bright, clear day on the day of the battle itself. 
and if the wind had been blowing in the opposite direction away from Kinsale, the noise of the gunshots from the battle itself may not have been carried very well whatsoever and it's quite plausible that the Spanish just simply didn't hear it. Or like what actually did happen, when they heard the gunshots right outside the walls of the town, the Spanish thought that that was the Irish and so they ventured out. But it could also have just been a ruse by the English to draw the Spanish out of Kinsale into the 5,000 men at the Earl of Thomond's camp and they could have been defeated that way. So that's all plausible too. And finally, it's arguable that Aguila and his Spanish men, had they ventured out and attempted to break through Carew's lines at the Earl of Thomond's camp, they were outnumbered. The English had roughly 5,000 men in the Earl of Thomond's camp. The Spanish had barely 3,600 men. So it's quite plausible that had the Spanish ventured out, they could have been defeated and just not altered the outcome of the battle whatsoever. So those are my arguments for the Spanish being clear of any blame. Agree with them or don't, I don't mind. I just think that those are some valid points to take into consideration. In Ireland, we generally tend to blame the Spanish for a lot of that. But speaking of blame, here are some of the arguments that puts the blame solely at the Spanish's feet. So number one, if you're going to plan an attack for the following day, knowing that there should be a battle, when you first hear of gunshots and other noises associated with battle, you should probably venture out and have a look. That's number one. That's simple. That's obvious. Number two, if you know that your allies have a considerable distance to march, okay, you know that they have to march five or six miles at night, and if they haven't reached the designated rendezvous point, but you hear shots in the distance, you hear battle being engaged in the distance, it would probably be considered wise to infer that, that your allies were intercepted, battle had formed and taken place, and they couldn't reach their rendezvous point. So you should probably venture out and try and help them. And number three, there are actual accounts of Spanish soldiers pleading with Aguila to leave the town to investigate the gunshots that they could hear in the distance. But Aguila either being unimaginative, overcautious, or just stubbornly sticking to the plan, refused to do so. Even as Father Archer, the Jesuit pre-suggested, creating a diversion could have even helped alter the outcome in some shape or form. Either way, I'm not here to point fingers. Blame cannot be singularly laid at the feet of Don Juan de la Guila. In the same way, in a football match, if a goal is scored, it's not just the goalie's fault. You know, The opponents had to get through 10 other guys before they got to the goalie. And, and so there's a whole host of reasons why O'Neill lost. Pork Lennon, in the book The History of War, says that battle in the 17th century was a moral contest rather than a physical one. What he means by this is that the soldiers were probably at their safest together in large formations in the Tercios. In fact, the majority of deaths on a 17th century battlefield, and indeed most battlefields prior to the modern mechanised warfare of the 20th century, was when one army lost its nerve, broke its ranks, and fled. This was one of the main roles of the cavalry, to chase down and kill the fleeing enemy. That's where the majority of the deaths were. It wasn't actually in the battle itself. And officers would tell their men that their safety was together, so they needed that mutual trust. It wasn't always the case. In some situations, the first few soldiers who broke rank and fled the battle, well, those guys probably got away. 
and that would cause others to lose trust in the formation and they would begin to break rank too. Now, it was generally the second and third and any of the others who broke rank who followed after. Those guys were chased down and dispatched by the enemy cavalry. And this is exactly what happened in Kinsale. 17th century casualty figures, like muster lists, were notoriously inaccurate and those reported at Kinsale were no exception. Fines Morrison, Mountjoy's secretary, reckoned that, quote, the Irish rebels left 1,200 bodies dead in a field, apart from those killed in the two-mile chase, end quote. In addition to about 140 Irishmen drowned when crossing the Blackwater River, another 200 were lost crossing the River Moy and at Owen Abbey, and many of the wounded were dispatched as well. The Spanish described the Battle of Kinsale as una derrota, which was a rout, and it's right. It was all over within two hours. The battle itself actually took less time than it takes to read the 27 contemporary accounts. Like I said, 17th century casualty lists were notoriously inaccurate, and the English have one single casualty, a man called John Taylor, and it was mentioned three times in three different dispatches. Now surely that is a grotesque misrepresentation if we recall the series of assaults on the town over a 10 week period and the actual fighting done on Christmas Eve. Carew's report to Cecil may be well nearer the truth, which reads as, quote, Kinsale was bought at so dear a price. I do believe that at the siege and afterwards, we lost above 6,000 men, end quote. The annals of the Four Masters state that the Irish losses were not great. English accounts claim 1,200 Irish dead and 800 wounded. O'Sullivan Bear wrote that the English had 15,000 men at the beginning of the siege, but 8,000 perished by sword, hunger, cold and disease. And in the final battle, O'Sullivan claimed that O'Neill lost only 200 men. Finds Morrison, the master of understatement, seemed to be more concerned about the number of horses killed than the number of soldiers. He also records English soldiers looting the Spanish dead. Quote, Among the dead, many were found to have spells and holy medals upon their body. End quote. Ultimately, Kinsale was an English victory, albeit an unglorious one. But Mountjoy was the master of the field in Ireland, winning where so many previous Tudor generals had failed before him. Mountjoy had defeated the great O'Neill, and while this wasn't the end of the war, it was certainly the beginning of the end for O'Neill. So what went wrong for the Irish? O'Neill's forces at the end of the 16th century were, given the right circumstances, more than a match for their English contemporaries. The ordinary Irish soldier was considered, quote, in weapons and discipline, little inferior to us English, and in body and courage equal, if not superior to us. End quote. Fines Martin was of the opinion that, quote, men of more active bodies, more able to suffer cold, heat, hunger, thirst, and whose minds are more void of fear, can hardly be found in this world. End quote. Even before the battle took place, so many things went wrong for the Irish and the Spanish. So let's have a look at some of them. 
While the Spanish landings were indeed meant for Munster, they were never meant for Kinsale. Kinsale was a small and difficult town to defend. It's surrounded by high ground and its 200 buildings were easily pounded by Mountjoy's artillery from these higher positions. The only reason why this town was chosen was purely because the Spanish were blown off course was because the Spanish were blown off course by wild Atlantic storms and they arrived there looking for safety. The full contingent of Spanish troops never actually arrived. In the initial landing, another 1,000 men, artillery, ammunition and food stores that were on the boats that had turned around in the Atlantic storm that had returned to Spain, well they never showed up either. So that automatically affected the fighting force and the living conditions of the Spanish in Kinsale. Del Aguila was assured by his northern allies that the Irish populace would readily flock to his side, but this never happened. In fact, after the initial landing, the majority of the Kinsale townspeople were openly hostile to the Spanish. And the Sugan Earl, who was meant to link up with the Spanish after they arrived, had been arrested months earlier and was imprisoned in the Tower of London, so they could provide no aid to the lost Spanish soldiers. Aguila had arrived with 1,600 saddles, but the expected horses that the Irish had guaranteed them never showed up. Another broken promise by the Irish. This meant that the Spanish could not raid as far into the local area for food and supplies and it also meant that the Spanish could not provide a much needed powerful cavalry force in the Battle of Kinsale itself. Had that cavalry force been present, the Marshal's cavalry charge may not have been as successful or indeed the Earl of Thoman's camp might have been run over by the Spanish cavalry. The Spanish were stuck in Kinsale and they couldn't leave. They didn't have the troops, they didn't know the area well enough. Mountjoy had descended so quickly on them and he prevented their escape by land and by sea. In fact, Mountjoy at one point had 10,000 more men than the Spanish had. And the Spanish couldn't resupply by sea as they were blocked off by the English Navy. Neither the Irish nor the Spanish had any artillery with them. And this would have a monumental effect on the outcome of the battle. Perhaps with the guns O'Neill had captured in Sligo or Ballyshannon or Yellowford a few years earlier, they could have implemented O'Neill's battle plan, which was to besiege the English and then bombard them constantly in the process. As well as that, with artillery, O'Neill could have bombarded Dublin in his effort to draw Mountjoy away from the Spanish in Kinsale. Mountjoy may not have been able to stay away if the fall of Dublin to O'Neill was the potential outcome. I don't think he would have been able to make that gamble. The Spanish battle plan itself wasn't necessarily a bad one. The besieging English had become the besieged. They were surrounded by the Irish on one side, the Spanish on the other, and escaping that ring would have been very difficult. And then with the Spanish linking up with the Irish and attacking the English camps either piecemeal or altogether in a surprise dawn attack, well that made a lot of sense. Now, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, O'Neill's original plan to starve out the English forces would have been much better. Not only because O'Neill had just raided the Pale's farm and so his men were well fed and a lot more food supplies than the English, but also because they were far more used to defensive measures, not aggressive attacks in standing battles. And had the English attempted to break through the Irish lines, 
This would have suited the Irish even more, because it would have been a defensive attack. As well as that, but the English reports told that they were starving, and it would have only taken three days of besieging them before Mountjoy would have had to separate his cavalry and send them off for resupply. And just think about that. Without the English cavalry, O'Neill could have then assaulted the English camps and easily defeated them. But that's the benefit of hindsight, I guess. O'Donnell and O'Gila's impetuosity, Malay ruled the day and O'Neill was outvoted. Tactically, the battle plan made sense. However, in deploying his three divisions, the problems start to amount very rapidly. It's unknown how the scouts who had traversed Ireland literally from the northern tip to the most southerly part could get lost in a night's travelling only a few miles. And there were local scouts too, so they should have known the area. O'Neill's deployment of the van, main and the rear divisions was also super contested. Surely the vanguard, as the name suggests, should go first. But obviously, as we found out, O'Neill's main division, they were first in line. And the distances between the three Irish divisions were so great that they were neither formed up for battle when it began, but also they were so far apart that they couldn't help each other out when the battle commenced. And so, just as O'Neill had done to the English at Yellow Ford, Mountjoy was able to do to the Irish. He was able to separate them and defeat them. Mountjoy was able to defeat the Irish divisions piecemeal one after the other. Now had the three Irish divisions marched in much closer order, the outcome of the battle would have been completely different. O'Neill's men, even though they were far more used to ambushes, would have been easily able to use their overwhelming numerical majority to crush Mountjoy's sickly, numerically inferior squadron volant and the rest of the men at the Earl of Thomond's camp. As for the Irish cavalry, well, they barely played an offensive part against the English in this battle. They had made no attempt to charge the English cavalry, no attempt to charge the English infantry, and as we all know now, they were not able to withstand an English cavalry charge. And of course, they ran into their own men. The role of the Spanish Tercio in European battlefields was to always stand firm. You can be surrounded, you can be fired upon, you can be charged at, but you must always stand firm. And just like in the Greek phalanx, when one man dropped, another took his place. And this type of fighting was just so alien to the Irish who formed up the three Irish divisions at Kinsale. Even though O'Neill had spent countless hours and vast sums of money training and inspiring his men to drill in that formation, their experience was to hit and run when it best suited them. And understandably, for the man in the ranks of a Spanish tercio at King Sale, or in any tercio really, getting shot at and just waiting your turn to be shot isn't the best way to spend your day. And it's definitely not the best way to fight when you know you are much better in ambushes and in different methods of fighting, rather than just standing and waiting for your turn to get shot. Another reason why the Battle of Kinsale was a major failure for the Irish was because they had no secure line of retreat, no bogs or wooded areas in which they could extricate their men if the situation arose, which it definitely did, and that's the main reason why the majority of the 1,200 men who were slain after they broke ranks and tried to flee. Had they have tried to flee into a bog or a wooded area which would have slowed down their 
pursuers on horseback, the Irish losses may not have been so great. And finally, while Mountjoy's land forces were largely responsible for the defeat of the Irish and Spaniards, the Royal Navy rendered essential services to that English victory. Some strategists argued that without Leveson's ships, Kinsale would have almost certainly have been an Irish-Spanish victory, which would have totally altered the whole course of European history. Ireland, and even England itself, could have become provinces of the Spanish Empire. England wouldn't have been able to settle Virginia, which began in 1607 after the Spanish agreed to not attack English ships in the Atlantic. Everything would have been different had the Battle of Kinsale gone the other way. Frederick the Great once said, quote, If I were mindful of my own glory, I would choose always to make war in my own country. End quote. And the same could be said for Hugh O'Neill. So what happened after the battle? That night, the defeated Irish made camp and decided what their next move was going to be. O'Neill, he retreated back to Ulster to carry on the fight against Mountjoy. On the 27th of December, 1601, Hugh O'Donnell is sent on a mission to the Spanish court to secure more military assistance. And while he is well received by the Spanish, O'Donnell was poisoned by an English spy and died the 10th of September 1602. The exhausted English knew that they could never take Kinsale town without appalling bloodshed. And eventually they agreed on terms on the 2nd of January 1602. Aguila's Spaniards sailed home undefeated, their flags flying and their weapons by their sides. One key clause almost wrecked the agreement between the English and Spanish. Mountjoy had demanded that Aguila surrender his Irish insurgent allies, but Aguila told him that if it was ever mentioned again that they were both back to war. In fact, Aguila said, quote, He would face Mountjoy at the breach in Kinsale's walls and lay 500 of your best Englishmen in the earth. End quote. So he really didn't want to hand over his Irish allies. Yet after the ceasefire, Mountjoy and Aguila formed an unlikely friendship. They would dine together and agreeing to work towards a general peace. Astonishingly, Spain's King Philip even awarded £1,000 pension to Mountjoy, the man who had foiled his invasion. Other officers showed this example and just two years later, this reapproachment led to the end of the long-running war between England and Spain. This peace in the Atlantic gave the English freedom to colonise America, and particularly Virginia. Without Kinsale, the future of the US, and indeed European history, could have been totally different. When Hugh O'Neill finally surrendered to Mountjoy in 1603, it was on excellent terms. It really was. The Treaty of Mellifont was as if Mountjoy had just hit an undo button and essentially restored O'Neill back to his pre-war status. The pragmatic Mountjoy recognised the importance of keeping O'Neill on his side. In another unpredictable development, he effectively became O'Neill's protector against the predatory English colonists. However, once Mountjoy died on the April 3rd, 1606, the vultures circled in. Land and religious encroachments were too much for O'Neill. Failing to appear in a court over a land dispute and knowing what the consequences would be, O'Neill gathered his family and hundreds of his closest allies and left Ireland to seek help from the Catholic armies on the continent. This was become known as the Flight of the Earls. 
and the flight of the Earls in 1607, this really was the end of Gaelic Ireland. Ulster, the most Irish part of Ireland, would be planted by English and Scottish settlers in 1609. These planters were socially, culturally, religiously different to the native Irish. This settlement would cause conflict for the next 400 years and be one of the main reasons for the establishment of Northern Ireland. Indeed, the flight of the Earls may have been the ultimate end of Gaelic Ireland, but it was at Kinsale where the straw broke the camel's back. After Kinsale, O'Neill had little to no hope of winning the war. He had lost his best fighting men, his ally Hugh O'Donnell was dead in Spain, and his Spanish allies were soon to sue for peace with England. One of the terms of that treaty was each promised not to support rebels of either one's colonies, which meant the Spanish were never going to assist Irish rebels ever again. And yet O'Neill tried to persist and continue his rebellion, but to no avail. And unbeknown to O'Neill, when he surrendered to Mountjoy at Mellifont and swore fealty to Queen Elizabeth, she had passed away just days earlier. Had he have known this, he may have been able to enter into talks with King James I on much more favourable terms. But that wasn't to be. Had Kinsale gone in the Irish favour, Ireland, Europe and the world would have been completely different. Had Aguila's men met up with O'Neill's troops and defeated Mountjoy's men, who knows what could have happened. Perhaps Ireland, and perhaps even England, could have fallen under Spanish rule. And who knows how different that would have been. It would have meant that Spain still ruled in the Atlantic, which meant that the English couldn't have colonised America, which would have totally upset world history and changed it irrevocably. And not to say Gaelic Ireland may have never have wilted or fallen, but maybe it would have grown, or maybe it would have wilted, or maybe it would have organised organically into something completely different. But what I do know, that Kinsale was a battle that truly changed the world, Europe and Ireland forever.